If I haven't met you yet, my name is Jason. I have the privilege to be one of the pastors here and excited to open God's word with you today. Our scripture reading is from Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me there. I'm going to be reading Jeremiah 29, verse 1 through 14. And of course, we believe that the prophet Jeremiah is writing these words, but he's, he's writing them uh, as a minister of the gospel. He's writing them being filled and inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And so he's writing them. They come to us today with authority, the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were teaching. So let's hear together this word of Christ. Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. It said, here's the word of the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem, to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. We've been in a series these past three weeks about our identity as a church, our identity at Christ's covenant, who we are, who we desire to be. And we've been, from the very beginning of our church, kind of centering ourselves around these three big convictional ideas. We, we wanna be a gospel people, as Jordan just was saying. 
we believe that the only access that we have to God, the only way that we can be set right is by the power of the gospel of Jesus. We want to be a kingdom people. We believe that Jesus has, through this gospel, called us to be a people, called us to be part of his eternal kingdom, and we want to be a people on mission. And if you were here last week, we gave you this little card. I know it's going to be kind of small for some of you, um, but we have this image that we, we put around all the time at Christ's covenant that talks about these three core convictions, about some values that we want to be true of us, and then behaviors that we have to develop those. And so when we're talking about these values, we want to be a people of gospel centrality, meaning that we want the gospel to be at the center of our lives. I love that song that we sang in Christ Alone. And one of the lines that I like is it says, Jesus commands my destiny, right? Does Jesus command your destiny? Is Jesus at the center of your life? Are you living a gospel-centric life? Another thing that we want to be true of us is what we call gospel clarity. As I said last week, if you were here, we live in a world of counterfeit gospels, things that pass off as a means to know God, as a means to have fellowship with God, but that are counterfeit. They're ultimately valueless. And then we also want to be a gospel-fluent people, which means that we want you to know the gospel better than I know Spanish, right? I, I, I know a little Spanish, and I think a lot of Christians in Atlanta, their, their, their gospel knowledge is about like my Spanish knowledge. You know, you can say like, donde es el baño in gospel. You, you know a little bit of how the work of Christ applies to your life, but you're not fluent in it. It doesn't really apply to kind of every sphere and aspect of who you are. And if this starts to be true of us, we'll be knit together as a kingdom family. We want to be a kingdom family, people that have been called out by Christ as a local church to love one another. And this is what Thomas talked about a few weeks ago, to stir one another along toward faith and good deeds. This is discipleship in communion with one another. And then as that begins to happen in us, we'll be kingdom ambassadors. We'll be representatives of this gospel, of this kingdom, as we scatter out from this place. And finally, related to that, we want to be people that are passionate about the Great Commission. We want to make disciples. We believe that Jesus has given us this great charge, this great commission to make disciples, not only here in Atlanta, but literally all over the world. We want to see the kingdom go forward. We want to see the good news go all over the world. And so we're, one of the things we're very passionate about as a church is planting other churches and is sending missionaries and is training up pastors and missionaries that can go out and that can reach places that don't have access to this good news. But we also, from the very beginning of our church, have said that we, we also want to be people that are attuned with what we call the great commandments of God. To, to love our neighbor, to really be a blessing to those around us, to, to not just be the kind of people that take from the community that we live within, but the people that take from ourselves, if you will, in order to give to the community. We want to be a blessing to this city, to this community. And, and that's what we're centering on today as we, as we look at this text in Jeremiah. And Jeremiah 29 is a really, really helpful text for us in this regard. It's a really helpful text for us to learn what it means for us to be good neighbors, what it means for us to bless this city. And, and there's really three things I want to think about with you today. First, this idea of exile. Second, what it means to live in the city. And then third, how to seek the welfare of the city. 
So first I wanna talk about exile. Exile is an idea that you see throughout the Bible. You have to understand it. There's a, there's a sense in exile where you're not quite fully in communion with God. And because of our sin, because we are not in the presence of God in the new Jerusalem, in a sense, we're all in exile. We're all awaiting our true home. We know that we're away from our true home. And this idea began in the very beginning of Scripture. When Adam and Eve were with God in the garden, there was no such thing as exile. They were fully experiencing communion with God. But when sin came onto the scene, when Adam and Eve broke God's law, they were sent in exile. They were excommunicated. They were put out of the presence of God. They were put out of the garden. And of course, we see this continue. Adam had, of course, a son, Cain, who killed his brother Abel. And the same thing happened to him. When he killed Abel, he was exiled. He was put away from the family. Remember that scene? It's a, it's a scene where, where Cain is begging, please don't send me away. I want to stay home. I want to stay with, with you. He said, this is sin I cannot bear. And it continues as we're going to see throughout Scripture. Now, what's interesting about Cain, when I was in high school or I think maybe early college, VH1 had this show called Where Are They Now? Do you remember that show? It was like, where are they now, the bad boys of the 80s? And you'd be like, oh yeah, whatever happened to Axl Rose? Or where are they now, child stars? And it would tell you like what Macaulay Culkin was doing. I mean, you remember this show? Yeah. Okay, I mean, my, my, my analogies are really failing here. <laughs> Music Man last week, VH1 this week. But anyway, I was trying to be cool. VH1, you know, it's cool. But anyway, uh, anyway, uh, the end of chapter four of Genesis, it's kind of like, where are they now, Cain? And it's fascinating. Everybody knows the story of Cain and Abel. But you know what happens after this? Cain, of course, is exiled. He has to leave. Um, but, but the end of chapter 4, you can look at the screen. You don't have to turn there. But this is from Genesis 4. It says, Cain knew his wife. And she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after his son Enoch. This is the first mention of this idea of a city in the scripture. So it's very interesting that the, the idea of a city and the idea of exile kind of go together. Now look at what starts to happen in the city. Look at verse 20. It says, Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. You could say this is kind of the beginning of real estate. This is the beginning of the housing market, right? So if you guys are in real estate, I got a bunch of buddies in real estate out there. This is, y'all owe a lot to Jabal. And then look at verse 21. It says his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe, right? So this is kind of the beginning of the arts. And so for those of you that are musicians or artists, this is graphic designers. This is kind of the beginning of the arts. And then verse 22, Zila also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments and bronze and iron. And so we see kind of the beginning of industry and manufacturing. Those of you that are in manufacturing or industry, this is kind of the beginning of that. What do we see here? We see housing, we see arts, we see industry, manufacturing. These are all things that you find in a city. Cain was out building a city. And so there's, there's this interesting relationship between exile and the city. The, the next city that you see in the Bible uh, is, of course, Babel. Remember the story of Babel, the, uh, uh, this great city, and people were going to build this tower up to heaven. But what happens? God kind of once again exiles the people. Later on, of course, God calls Abraham to be 
his chosen servant. He, he was the one to receive the blessing of God, fellowship with God, Abraham and all of his offspring. But of course, if you know this story, famine comes, the Abraham and his descendants go down into Egypt. Egypt, this great metropolis, this place where all these powerful cities were. And, and once again, we find the people of God in Egypt, kind of in exile, in the cities of Egypt. The, this idea of exile and this idea of cities, it's, a, it's an interesting little thing to study throughout the Bible. But of course, Moses comes along, he frees the people of Israel from captivity in Egypt. They go back to the promised land. And what happens? They establish a city. Only this city is different than any other city. It's not the city of man, it's the city of God. It's Jerusalem, it's the city of peace, it's the city of blessing, it's the city where everything is whole and right, where God's people are, and where God really reigns. And all throughout the Bible, there's this contrast between the city of God and the city of man. I mean, one of the most famous books in Christian history, written by St. Augustine, is called the City of God. And it, it picks up on this theme, this, this idea of two cities. There's always two cities. There's a city of man and a, and a city of God. They're always kind of going on. And this theme is happening throughout all of Scripture. And it's interesting. Throughout the Bible, the, the city that always represents the city of God is Jerusalem. And the city that usually represents the city of man is Babylon. And so you see what's happening here? This is the people of Israel. They've been living in Jerusalem. They've been feeling the blessing of God. They've, they've had proximity to God. The Spirit of God was dwelling with them in Jerusalem, but they forgot God's law and they went away from God's way. And now they're in exile. And they're not just in exile. <laughs> they're in Babylon the worst place to be. In fact, even through the scripture, there's the contrast between Babylon and Jerusalem. It's everything that Jerusalem is not. If Jerusalem is a place of peace, Babylon is a place of violence. If Jerusalem is a place of holiness, Babylon is a place of sin. And here these people are, the people of God, the, the citizens of Jerusalem. They're supposed to be in Jerusalem. And here they are in exile in Babylon. And what God says to them, the instruction that God gives to them here, God is still speaking to them, may surprise you. And this gets us to the second point, how to live in the city. Look at verse four with me again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. They'd all come from Jerusalem, and now they're in Babylon. They'd, they'd all come from Jerusalem where everyone was kind of like them. 
Now, obviously, they're in exile, right? So everybody in Jerusalem wasn't following God. But there was at least in Jerusalem an agreed-upon worldview, an agreed-upon morality. There was a common worldview. And here they are in Babylon, where not only they're surrounded by Babylonians that think very differently than they do, they're also surrounded by other exiles from all over the world. Babylon was the power, and they're, they're capturing not just Israel, not just the people of Abraham, the children of Abraham. They're capturing people from all over the world, and they're bringing them to Babylon. They're bringing them into the city to assimilate them, to make them like Babylonians. It's very interesting, I think, for us. You know, some of you guys have been in Atlanta for your whole life. But even you, even you lifelong Atlantans, I hear you say it. You say stuff like, man, Atlanta is not what it used to be. It's so much more global now. It's so much different than it was. But a lot of you are like me. You're, you're relatively new to Atlanta. And you've come to Atlanta from places like Gadsden, Alabama, or Chattanooga, Tennessee, or even Johns Creek, right? And in those places, right, it's not that everybody's the same there, but in those places, there's more so a common worldview, a common understanding of the world. Places like Gadsden, Alabama, the assumptions about life and God and sexuality, they're kind of the same, right and wrong. They're more homogeneous cultures. And then you get to Atlanta, and there's so many different worldviews and so many assumptions that, that maybe you've kind of made your whole life are being challenged. They're being questioned. There's all these different groups with all these different distinctives. And I was thinking just, just kind of as an aside here, to understand how groups are distinctive, that there's really three things or three ideas that go into that. Every group, let me get the slide here, that every group has an epistemological distinctive, right? So if you are a follower of Islam, if you are a Muslim, then the Quran kind of develops and determines your understanding of truth. Epistemology is how do you know what's true? How do you know what's right? So every group, every culture has an epistemological distinctive. If you're a Buddhist person, right, then the, the Dalai Lama to you has some authority. There's, there, there's a, they're determining what might be true or right or wrong or false. In kind of a modern secular world, well, it's interesting in the modern world, a, 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 a true modernist would say that truth is determined by observation. Truth is determined by what you can see and observe and test. But in the postmodern world, truth is less about what's outside, but more about what's inside. You, you do you. What, what's true? Your truth. What's true to you? It's interesting. I was actually talking uh, to a friend of mine who's a scholar in a secular university, and... Uh, he was just saying, he was talking about his frustration. It was, a, it was, a, it was surprising for him, going to give a secular guy in a secular university to admit this. But he said, you know, one of the things that frustrates me about my university is that our epistemology is so reactionary. It, it's like it's flowing out of nothing. It, it, it's just everybody believes in reaction to something else. There's no form about it. I thought that was quite a concession for kind of a postmodern secular person 
to make. But of course, as Christians, we have an epistemological distinctive too. We believe that we can know truth by knowing God and by knowing what he's revealed, by understanding what he has communicated, what he has told us. But there's also a story distinctive, right? If you've been around Christ's covenant, I talk all the time about the Atlanta narrative, right? There's an Atlanta narrative. You can do this, you can do this, you can do this. You can be a success. You can be special. You can be something, right? Atlantans have a narrative that we're living by, but really every group of people has a narrative that they're kind of trying to follow. Last night I did a wedding in Auburn and we were driving back home and the kids were in the back of the Suburban watching Atlanta. Now, if you're watching Atlanta, watching Aladdin. And if, uh, yeah, if you're, uh, if you're, uh, you know, a, a new, if you just got married or if you're, you're dating a girl seriously, you're a guy here, here's one of the things you look forward to when you start having kids. It's, it's the art of listening to movies, right? And so, you're driving in the car, your kids are in the back watching a movie, and so you get to be an expert at just imagining what the movie is about, right? A lot of the movies like Aladdin I've seen, some of the movies I haven't seen, and I just imagine them, and then when I actually watch them, they're never as good as what I imagine them to be. So you'll enjoy listening to movies. But Aladdin, right? There's a, there's a story distinctive in that. There's, a, there's this destiny that, um, you know, the princess has that she's supposed to marry a prince who'll become a sultan. Like, you have to follow this kind of story arc, this narrative. This is what success is. And of course, as Christians, we have a story distinctive. We see ourselves as people that God has created, that he's called to live for him in his kingdom, that, that we have an eternal hope and a future in him. Again, that, that line in the song, Jesus commands my destiny, right? That's our destiny, commanded by Christ. We have a story distinctive. We have an epistemological distinctive. And we also have a people distinctive. We are called into community of people. We are called to, together as a people of God. Now, this is also interesting. Every group has a people distinctive. And I talked about this a few weeks ago. It was one of the services that we streamed, but it was the one that I did from Ephesians 2, where we talked about the new people, the, the kainos anthropos. And we said that humanity understands itself in opposition to other groups, right? And this is big right now. If, you've, if you don't believe what this is saying, just this is right now, it's on display, right? Humanity understands itself in opposition to these other groups. So a lot of times, for example, more than you're a Republican, for example, you're not a Democrat, right? Or more than you're a Democrat, you're not a Republican, right? I'm not one of those. I'm not a part of this group or that group or this movement or that movement. I know that I'm not like them, right? And that's how we understand who we are. That's how humanity operates. It's a reactionary identity. And what we said in that sermon is that Christians are not people that understand ourselves in opposition to other people, other groups, but we understand ourselves, our identity in relationship to God. We are a people that God has redeemed from all sorts of folks, from rich and poor and black and white and left and right and all of these groups that God is calling to be in kainos anthropos, a new humanity. This is the people that we've been called to, but every group has this. Every group, every kind of distinct group, they have an epistemological distinctive. Where do they discern truth from? They have a story distinct from. Where's their group going? What, what, what's their group supposed to be doing? 
And then they have a people distinctive. Who, who are they? Who, who, who is this group that's being called together, that's forming? And when you find yourself in a distinct group, what people have always done throughout history, they've, they've typically done one of two things. When you find yourself as a part of a group among other distinct groups, people have always done one of two things. And the first thing that people do is they assimilate. They just become like the dominant group. They just become like whatever the majority group is. I'm just kind of going to go along with them. And it's interesting. This is what the Babylonians wanted for these Jewish exiles. They wanted them to assimilate. Uh, another prophet that was speaking or writing during this time was Daniel. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Daniel, but Daniel is kind of about this, this pressure to assimilate. Remember the story of Daniel? I, some of y'all even may be on a Daniel fast right now. Now, I know that you think that, you know, Daniel was trying to shed a few pounds after the holidays and that's why he was eating the way he was. But actually, Daniel's dietary restrictions were about something different. It wasn't a good diet plan for him. It was the way that he was following his distinctive, his, what God has revealed. He was saying, no, I am... I believe that God has spoken and this is what he desires for me. And so I'm a part of a different story. I'm, I'm a part of a different people. I have a different epistemology. And so I'm not going to assimilate, even though everybody was saying, Daniel, just, just be like everybody else. And the Babylonians said, come on in. I mean, we, we want you guys to, be, to enjoy the blessings of Babylon. Another story in that same book, some of y'all remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Remember that story? These three Hebrews, it's the same thing. There was, a, there was a golden tower and they just said, look, just bow down to the tower. It's not a big deal. This is what all the Babylonians are doing. Just bow down to the golden tower and you'll be fine. You, you certainly don't want to be thrown into the furnace. Just assimilate. This is what the Babylonians wanted for the people. So if you're a part of a distinct group and you find yourself among other distinct groups, the, the first kind of, one of the intuitions you may have is to assimilate. The other intuition that you may have, though, the other thing that people usually do is they separate, right? And this is kind of the opposite. And it's interesting. Verse 8, what's happening in verse 8 is Jeremiah, the prophet, is actually speaking against these false prophets. Look at uh, verse 8. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. It is a lie that they are prophesying in my name. I did not send them. And what these guys were saying, we read about actually in Jeremiah 27, these guys were saying, separate, get out of Babylon, be different, get, get away from the city, get away from the Babylonians. But God here is saying something else. He says, don't separate, right? Don't move away, don't start your own school, don't start your own club. Don't start your own little group where you're different from the Babylonians. Move in. Build a house. Seek the welfare of the city. And in its, and in its peace, in its welfare, you will have peace. You know, it's interesting. 50 years ago in Atlanta, there were fewer people that lived in Atlanta than do today, 50 years ago. But there were a lot more churches there were, there were many more churches 50 years ago, and there were stronger churches, healthier churches. 
But now there's fewer churches, even though there's more people. What happened? And this is what happened. Some people assimilated. They just kind of became a part of the secular culture of the city. But other people separated. They, they got out. They went to a safer place, a more homogeneous place. Because here's the deal. It's hard to live as a distinct people in a diverse place. It, it requires, it's uncomfortable. It requires a lot of thought. It requires knowing what you believe and maybe always, you know, having interesting conversations with people. It, it requires sometimes some feeling a little out as an outsider. You're not always in. So people, usually people just assimilate or they separate. But what God's saying here to his people, the people of Israel, is I don't want you to do either. I sent you to Babylon. I sent you into exile. I put you in this place. Move in. Build houses. It's my plan. I, I, I want for you not assimilation, not separation, but what I'll call a present distinctiveness. <laughs> I want you to distinctively be present in Babylon for the good of the city. And I'm doing this. I sent you into exile. And here's the thing. God loves messy and diverse cities. He loves them. I mean, there's another prophet that writes, you probably heard this story too, the story of Jonah. You know that story? We all know about Jonah and the fish. But what about the whole context of that story about the fish? What is God saying to Jonah? Go to Nineveh. Nineveh was like the capital city of Assyria, who was the other bad guy, the other people that the people of Israel just hated. You got Babylon, you got Assyria, everybody's being sent into these horrible places. But this is, this is what the people of God have kind of always done. The, the early church was this way. You know where Paul went? Paul always went, wherever he went, he went to the most influential city in that area. Why? Because he knows how stuff works. He knows that influence goes out from the city. He went to the place, he went to the toughest place and started preaching the gospel. And if the gospel can make it there, it'll, it'll spread out to the other places around. And in fact, it's interesting, in, in the first few centuries of the church, Christianity actually penetrated the cities long before they, it penetrated the rural parts. In fact, the word rural comes from the Latin, or the, the word pagan rather, comes from the Latin paganus, which means rural. <laughs> the Christians were in the cities. It was all the rural people that were the pagans. God is saying, no, no, don't assimilate, but don't separate. Be distinctively present in the city. And that brings me to the third. Let me, oh, I have a sentence here. It says, don't let your distinctiveness take you away from the city. Don't let the city take your distinctiveness away from you. Let your distinctiveness serve the city. I think you could sum this up like that. Don't, don't. Don't let your distinctiveness take you away from the city. Don't let the city take your distinctiveness away from you, but let your distinctiveness serve the city. And, and the third point then is how. How do you do this? If you want to be distinctively present in the city, how do you do that? And the first thing, and this is so important, is you have to hold on to your distinctiveness. 
This is what we talked about last week. There's, there's counterfeit gospels all around you. So how do you hold on to truth? How do you hold on to the true gospel? How do you continue in this distinct epistemology, in this distinct story, a part of this distinct people that we talked about? What's things we talked about last week? Let's go to the next slide here. You, you have to understand, you have to be centered on, let's go to the next slide, you have to be centered on the word of God, right? You, you need to be in a place like this, hearing the word of God preached. There's a lot of epistemological uh, claims out there. This is true, this is true, this is true. What I'm saying to you, and you need to hear this, is this is true. This is not some sort of reactionary epistemology. This is an epistemology that flows from the foundation of the universe, God himself. You need to be a part of the people of God. You need to be in a local church. I just wanna say, you know, we've had several people visiting our church during this time, and maybe your church is not meeting. I'm so glad you're here. Um, but I just wanna say, don't be kind of a floater Christian. Be in with the people. Be in with people that know you. Join a community group. Have people that can speak into your life. I just want to say this. I want to repeat something I said last week. I think there's some Christians, and you do community for a little while, and you do Bible study a little while, and you're like, I got it. I'm a mature Christian now. I don't need people. Last week, we looked at Galatians. You know who needed correcting you know who needed somebody that loved him that could bring a word of rebuke against him? Last week, there's two guys that Paul mentions, Peter and Barnabas, okay? I know some of you guys have read through the whole Bible. I know some of you guys have been in a community group for the past four and a half years. None of y'all are Peter or Barnabas, okay? If Peter and Barnabas need community, if they need people to correct them and to speak into their lives, so do you, Okay? You need to be a part of God's people. You need to be a part of God's story. That's a great question to ask yourself. What story are you in? What story are you living for? Are you really of Jerusalem? Or are you of Babylon? <laughs> Have you bought into the narrative around you? Have you grabbed on to this, you know, American or Atlanta or whatever it is, success story? Is that where success is? Or does success really come from being a people of God? And then the mission of God. Are you really on mission for God? You know the people that I know that either assimilate or that separate? They're people that don't really know the word of God. They're not really connected to a people. They don't really see themselves as a part of the story of God and they're really doing nothing missionally. Those are the people that they'd either separate or assimilate. But the people that get in there and have this kind of messy and distinct presence in the city, they're the people that, man, all of these, all of these are turned up in their life. They have to be. That's why you get to the end of the passage. It says, look, if you'll live like this, you will seek me and you will find me. If you live a present distinctfulness in the city where your worldview is being challenged all the time, guess what you're going to do? You're going to pray. You're going to be hungry for the word. You're going to be, you're, you're not, I'm not going to have to convince you for this. You'll just be like, give me more people of God. Give me more of the word of God. Give me, remind me of the story of God. So first, if you're going to be presently distinctive, don't lose your distinctness. Make sure these things are true in your life. Secondly, it's just, and I love what Jordan said. Man, aren't you so glad? I just was listening to Jordan. I was sitting back here next to John Mitchell, and I just looked at John. I said, this is so helpful. I just was so edified by that. I, I want to be a part of a church that the gospel is at the center of it because I... I want to be a follower of Jesus. 
And I have to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he has done. You know who Jesus is? Jesus is like the ultimate exile. I mean, Jesus left heaven. Jesus left the presence of God to come down here and identify with a bunch of exiles like us. And you know what's interesting about Jesus? You know where Jesus went? He went to Jerusalem. He actually went to the city of God, the place that was supposed to be the city of God. And he became an exile there. When, when you put to death a criminal in the ancient days, you always did it outside of the city. It was symbolic. It was a sign. This person is an outcast. They're not a part of us. They're, they're the outsider. They're the one that we're, we're, put, we're excommunicating them. We're getting them away from us. Jesus went outside of the city and he hung on a criminal's cross. Why? Because don't you see, Jesus had so identified with us. He had so identified with our sin, with our selfishness, with our false epistemologies and all our false stories and our false identities. He had so identified with all of the times that we betray God that he became the one that was put out by God, that was crushed by his father. The exile for us, I want you to hear this, so that we could be brought in Jesus is the way back home. That's what Jordan was saying earlier. He is the only way that we can have communion with the Father. Jesus was the answer that Cain and Adam were looking for. How do I get back in? How do I get back into the presence of God? Well, you get back into the presence of God when one from God was put out so that we could be brought in. And that brings me to the, the third thing that I wanna say here is remember your true home. If you, if you want to be presently distinctive, you have to remember your true home. And this is a good question for you guys. I want, you to, I want to ask you this question. I want you to think about it. Are you of Babylon or are you of Jerusalem? Where is your home? Where is your comfort? What are you looking for? You know the verse that's in this passage that we read? It's the most famous verse of the passage, Jeremiah 29, 11. It's the kind of verse that like your mom had cross-stitched on a pillow in your house. You know what I'm talking about? And I love your mom. I'm sure your mom's an amazing lady, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a, a gentle corrective to your mom. Jeremiah 29, 11 is not God saying, hey, look, you're going to be, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to prosper you in this life. No, what he's saying there is, I have plans for you. I have plans for you. And one day, I'm bringing you back to Jerusalem. In 70 years, I'm going to get you out of Babylon. I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem. I'm going to restore all of your wealth. I'm going to make you so prosperous, you can't even imagine it. But right now, I've sent you into Babylon. Be in Babylon. That's what that verse is saying. And that's what God's saying to you. I have plans for you. Do you know why you're in Atlanta? Do y'all know, you know why you're here? You think you're here. If I said, hey, why are you in Atlanta? You'd be like, well, I got a job. You know, KPMG hired me. I got a job at this school. I'm working for this cool construction company. That's how I got a job in Atlanta. I, you know, that's how I'm in Atlanta. Or maybe you followed some girl here. <laughs> no, but I want you to tell you, here, here's why you're in Atlanta. God has sent you to Atlanta. 
God has said, hey, this is my plan for you. I'm putting you in this place. Seek the welfare of this city. Be present here. Be distinctively present here. Don't let the city take away your distinctiveness. Don't let your distinctiveness take you away from the city. Let your distinctiveness be something that I use, that God uses to serve this city, to advance his kingdom here. And while we're here serving and giving ourselves, God is glorified. I I just want to say, Jesus He's the ultimate exile. Are you of Jesus? Are are you giving up comfort and security to go and find the oppressed person, to go and find the person that you need to serve? Is 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 that the direction of your life? Are you of Jesus? Or are you of Babylon? Has the story of the city, has the narrative of this place so grabbed your heart that you're lost in it? And so as as we close today, I want to give you seven really practical things to think through. Now, before I get into these, okay, everybody listen, right? Because I'm going to hopefully turn down the email traffic with this announcement, okay? I'm not saying these aren't commands, right? I'm not saying you have to do these. I'm not saying you're in sin if you don't do them, okay? These are just seven suggestions, Seven things to think about. Maybe some of them could be true of you. Some of you are going to make other decisions, and that's great. There's good reason to make decisions that aren't these things. But let me just give you seven things to think through. As we live presently distinctive in this city, the first is I just want to ask everybody here, and and I'm, I'm, I'm talking to a lot of folks with kids and then folks that, Maybe you're in love. You went on a date last night with your girlfriend. Y'all talked about, man, could we be together someday? Have a family. Maybe you're that person, but I'm talking to you. And here's my first thing. And again, I'm, I'm all about homeschool, private school. I think there's reason to do that. But, but consider as a presently distinctive person to put your children in public schools. Now, for some of y'all, I understand you may, you may have a lot of outward-facing relationships. Paige and I, we kind of have to put our kids in public schools. I mean, I work for a church. It's hard for me to make non-Christian friends outside of, in my job, you know, everybody that works at Christ Covenant's a Christian, right? So I, I realize for some of you, you may be in a more outward-facing job situation, but I would consider putting your children in public schools. I think it's so formational for them to be around people that don't think like them. I kind of want my kids to feel the Babylonian exile, if you will, when they're still under my roof. You know what Imran and I talk about all the time, my eight-year-old? We always talk about how she can be a light to her friends because she knows that her friends don't believe in God or they're not, her friends will say, I don't believe in God. And and it's awesome. She'll say, okay, how, and I'll say, "How how are you gonna talk to this person about what you believe? And you know what that means that I have to also do? We're always talking about why we believe what we believe and what it means to be Christian. It's wonderful. I love it. Now, I'll say this. It means that I have to be more intentional about discipling her and John Kellis and Rainer. But consider, consider that. Second, consider, consider what your forever home is like. You know, I have a lot of friends, they say, this is going to be our forever home. 
And again, I think that's great. I want you guys to live in big houses with yards and everything. But consider, are you making that decision with Jerusalem in mind or with Babylon in mind? Are you making that decision with that God has sent you here for a purpose in mind or is it just kind of all the Babylonians have a really nice house? And maybe that house is a little smaller than you thought it would be because you want to create some margin to spend money in other places. Or maybe it's in a different place because you feel like, man, God needs some believers to live here. So reconsider. Just consider. Just ask the question on your forever home. Here's the deal, guys. If you're in Christ, you have a forever home. <laughs> you have like a really great forever home in the new Jerusalem that Christ himself is preparing for you. Number three, third thing, consider some public service. Now, I'd love for like folks at Christ Covenant to be on the city council or on the school board or things like that. And maybe God could give you that opportunity, but consider just doing something to serve people that you don't really get anything in return from. You know, you want influence in this city. You want influence among people that don't think like you. Serve them. Do something valuable for them. You know, here's a little testimony. I've, some of y'all know this story, but a few years ago, I was preaching. I was kind of encouraging the church. I was like, say, hey, you want to have cultural influence? Do something valuable in the culture. Now, the, 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 day, the week before that, I had gone to the little E-Rivers PTA meeting. And I was sitting there at the PTA meeting, and the little PTA president said, hey, we really need some. We have all the volunteer slots filled. We need someone to volunteer to lead the talent show. Well, anybody, I remember sitting there at the PTA meeting thinking, man, that guy, you know, what a bum, you know. Who's going to do that? Who's going to lead an elementary school talent show? That sounds horrible. And so I'm preaching that Sunday. I'm talking about cultural influence. I'm talking about serve the city. And as I'm preaching, as I'm preaching, the Spirit of the Lord convicts me. And it's as if the Lord started saying to you, hey, you're supposed to go lead that talent show. I am giving you an opportunity to have influence in this school. You need to take it. And so while I was preaching, I, I said to the whole church, I was like, look, guys, I feel like the Lord is just kind of convicting me of something. I had an opportunity to go and serve this week, and I kind of shrugged it off. I'm going to call the school on Monday. I'm going to call the PTA president on Monday. And if nobody's taken the job of talent show leader, please, Lord, have somebody have taken the talent show leader. I'm going to volunteer for it. Well, sure enough, I call her on that Monday and I said, hey, is anybody, you know, taking the talent show? And she said, no. And I said, uh, okay, I mean, is it okay if I did it? She was, oh my gosh, that would be great. And so I've been in charge of the Evers talent show for three years now. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? It's awesome. I love it. And it's, I know all of these families. I have... I have relationships that I would never have without this public service. God has sent me to Atlanta, guys. And not just to be here with you, though I want to be here with you, but I'm, I got my own little ambassador work that I need to be doing. And so do you. You're here for a purpose. Number four, do something great for your neighborhood. Do something great for your neighborhood. Throw a party for your neighbors. You know, here's one you could do. Pull the trash up. Find one neighbor and you pull the trash from their cycling bin up for them every week and don't tell them about it. Just go do that. Just go serve. Just go be valuable on your block. Figure out a creative way to just 
to just seek the welfare of your street. And I want you to hear this. In its welfare, you will have welfare. How about this one? Be a really hard worker, okay? If you work for somebody, here's the challenge. You be the person that makes them the most money this year. Go make your boss rich this year. You want to have influence in your workplace? You want, to, you want to be a light in your workplace? Look, just read the Bible. Go look at the Hebrew people that had uh, great influence when they were in exile. You know what they were the people that did? They were the people that made the king rich. They were the people that made the boss rich. You want to have influence? Go work your tail off. Go make money for your company. Everybody will listen to you. And here's the deal. Don't be jealous about it. You already are rich. <laughs> you already are rich. God is preparing for you an eternal home. You have plenty of riches where it really counts. If you are a boss, this is the next one. If you are a boss, if you have people that work for you, pay them more. Pay them more. Be a great boss to them. Be, be the guy that they want to work for. Again, don't be ruled by Babylon. Number six, pray for the city. Do you have any habitual habit in your life where you're regularly praying for this place that God has sent you? And then last, and this is like the softball, right? This is the one... This is the one, you know, maybe some of those ones are a little curveballish. And, you know, look, I mean, these are, these are pinching me too. But look, here's the softball. Engage with the Blessed City opportunities. I mean, aren't these awesome? Here we have an opportunity to feed people that are in working class jobs that have been devastated by the coronavirus. Praise God that most folks, and I know not all of you, and I just want to say we have a coronavirus fund that our folks have been incredibly generous for. If you have need for that, please let us know. But for most of us, we've been insulated from the effects of the coronavirus, but there's a lot of people in our city that have not. And this is an opportunity for us to come alongside them and serve them and to seek their welfare or to teach ESL. You know, the, Melvin, the pastor that we're helping out, I love this guy. I want you all to meet him. He's this guy that has come here for Nicaragua. He is, he, he is here in Atlanta as an ambassador for Christ. He, he is not enjoying a lot of the blessings of Babylon like some of us are enjoying. He is here for Jesus. He is here with the new Jerusalem in mind. And if we could come alongside him and teach English to some folks as a second language, and you know, I love what Bella says, all you have to do is know English and love Jesus, okay? I can, I can do that. Look guys, God has sent you here. If you're in Christ, God has sent you here. And I wanna say this, he sent us to a pleasant place. He's given us a lot of blessings along the way. Praise God for that. We're not in Babylon. We're not in a tough place, but, and, and, and I think that we can enjoy the blessings that he's given us, but I pray that his kindness to us, his goodness to us would never be a distraction from the why of what he's called us to, here to do. Seek the welfare of this city. Seek the kingdom of God. Seek to bless this city so that, so that the kingdom that we're really a part of, the story that we're really a part of, the people that we're really a part of, will advance. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this word, this message to your people, and this message to us, Lord. They were longing for Jerusalem. We're longing for the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem's even better. Give us this heart, Lord. Help us to find our identity there. And give us faith, Lord. Give us faith to hear these things and to obey them. 
Center our lives on Christ, Lord. I pray that we, we would actually look like him, the ultimate exile, the one who gave up all comfort and all rest and all peace to serve broken people like us. And I pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.